when you look at it historically, every time we've seen a oil shock, it does send the economy into a recession. So 1973, I think, is a very good example that's very aligned with what we're seeing right now. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. As the Russia-Ukraine conflict continues to dominate headlines, portfolio managers Chris Heeks and Alfred Lee, along with your host Mark Rays, discuss implications on ESG investing, as well as interest rates, long-term bonds, covered call and income strategies, and oil. Before we hear from the team, please consider subscribing to Views from the Desk on your preferred podcast platform. And for many more ETF insights and resources, visit the Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. Hello, and welcome to our BMO ETF weekly insight call with our team of experts. I'm today's host, Mark Rays, head of product for BMO Global Asset Management. I'd like to thank everyone for listening in today. We really appreciate your time. Today, we are joined by Chris Heeks and Alfred Lee, both our portfolio managers on our ETF desk. So thanks to both of you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Good morning. Good morning. Let's get right into the questions. Lots to cover again today. One that's been creating quite a buzz in the industry is with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a lot of a renewed focus on ESG investing, but also how ESG uh, products really approach some of these concerns, whether that's uh, by company or country. And that's really despite the relative underperformance of these strategies of late uh, when you consider what's been driving markets. So using ESGG, our, our global ESG leaders ETF, how are these indexes constructed and what is your outlook for this exposure? Thanks. You know, when I look at ESGG uh, or ESG in general, definitely a lot of headlines as of late, especially what's going on in, in Ukraine. So I think the invasion definitely forced a lot of investors to put more emphasis in terms of uh, corporate governance. I think over the last couple of weeks, I've seen a lot of articles that have come out. A lot of them have been uh, positive, but some have also pointed out um, things certain ESG data providers uh, had a blind spot in terms of Russia, uh, in terms of the screening process, not being able to eliminate Russian holdings. So I looked at ESGG, uh, which is our global uh, leader ETF, so that's the global equity offering. Um, just looking at the exposure to Russia, uh, essentially had no uh, exposure to Russia. So just looking at the direct Russian listed security, it was uh, essentially zero, uh, no exposure to ADRs or GDRs, so no indirect exposure to Russia neither. Um, so I would say, you know, the screening process for ESGG was very good uh, in essentially, you know, avoiding Russia altogether. Uh, but when I look at the underperformance, so you noted that, you know, it underperformed over the first quarter. Uh, ESGG essentially had a performance uh, over the first quarter of negative 7.5%. So compared to the MSCI world, uh, underperformed by 1.2%. Uh, compared to the ACWI, it was down about uh, 1%. But when I look at the underperformance and where it's coming from, it's really due to the energy content. So I'm um, just looking at the you know energy exposure in ESGG. Um, you know, consider that 
you know, when you look at ESG mandates or when you look at ESG mandates, um, it's going to screen out, you know, a lot of those higher beta oil uh, companies, you know, one, you know, a lot of those companies that are more leveraged towards um, oil prices. So it's not a surprise that, you know, ESG related, related mandates are going to underperform when oil prices are at, at these levels. Um, I would say a good thing is that the underperformance over the quarter didn't come from a lack of governance, however. Uh, but just as a reminder, in terms of the construction of the indexes, uh, we track the MSCI leaders indexes. So a good thing is that, you know, when you look at this family of MSCI indexes, just in terms of the ESG screening, um, a good thing is that it doesn't take a blanket approach to screening companies. So it does take a universal approach in, when it comes to the corporate governance. Um, but I think what makes these indexes unique is when you look at the screening uh, in terms of the env- environmental and the social aspect, um, it looks at you know the, the industry that the company is involved. So, you know, there's 158 different industry subgroups, and within those you know different subgroups or all together in the screening universe, there's about 500 different metrics that MSCI applies. So, a good thing is that you know when you look at the different subgroups, they all have their own you know various metrics that apply to those different subgroups. So, you know, when you look at a software company, for example. Um, it's not scored the same way as, you know, an insurance company. So water pollutant is going to be more relevant for a software company, uh, but it's not going to be relevant for an insurance company where they're going to evaluate things like data breach uh, more importantly. Um, so I think overall, when you look at the outlook for ESGG, I think it's positive. Uh, it's a good one-ticket solution for, you know, investors to get global equity exposure. Um, I think going forward, when you look at the global economy, I think what's being kind of, you know, left out of the headlines now is, you know, we are kind of moving towards um, a global economy where we're learning to live with COVID. So I think that's going to be good for the global economy where, you know, demand is going to be be picking up. We're going to see a reopening. Um, But overall, I think, you know, when you look at ESG, I think ESG compliance is going to be more relevant in coming years. We heard terms like stakeholder capitalism, uh, which has come with a little bit of controversy, but um, I think it's clear that a lot of governments are moving towards this, um, you know, where they're going to be make, making it more punitive for companies that don't comply to a lot of these ESG-related metrics. So, you know, ETFs like ESGG, I think, is a good way to get, you know, global equity exposure, but at the same time, screening a lot of those companies that don't uh, comply to a lot of those ESG metrics going forward. Great. Thanks for that, Alfred. Certainly a lot of interest right now not just in ESG investing in general, but actually how these products are constructed. So appreciate that update. Introducing the new and improved ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. From the latest strategies and insight to trade ideas, podcasts, and the digital ETF roadmap, the enhanced dashboard features everything you loved before and more. Visit bmoetfs.ca, that's bmoetfs.ca, and bookmark now for one-click access. Now let's switch over to interest rates, which of course continue to push higher. Watching the Bank of Canada 10-year now breaking 250 points. Uh, of course, a lot of noise in the market last night, uh, particularly out of the U.S. about balance sheets. So if you look at this, is there a contrarian view? At what, at what point do long bonds start to look attractive? Or is there just too much risk in, uh, in the market right now that rates will push higher uh, especially when you add in inflation concerns as well. Thanks. You know, that's a good question. I think if you look at interest rates, 
they've definitely been making, you know, pretty significant moves over the last month. Um, just looking at the, at the Canadian tenure this morning, um, it's back up to about 2.58%. Uh, at the beginning of March, it was around you know, 1.65%. So, you know, within a month, we've seen a 90 basis point uh, gain. So actually more than a 90 basis point gain. Uh, when you look at, you know, what the market is anticipating uh, out of the Bank of Canada and even the Fed, so with the balance sheet comments that you just made, you know, we're definitely going to see, you know, higher interest rates over the next uh, coming weeks, especially with, you know, the market anticipating pretty aggressive rate hikes for the next couple of meetings. Um, but when when you look at the yield curve right now, I think there's a lot of factors at play, right, in terms of what's, you know, moving interest rates up, but also what's kind of suppressing interest rates as well. Um Overall, I would say over the last couple of weeks, you know, the market has clearly shifted its focus um, away from kind of, you know, what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, um, but more kind of more, you know, more focused on inflation and central bank tightening as well. Uh, the unemployment numbers, I think, uh, is part of the reason why that, you know, that focus has shifted uh, in addition to the recent GDP numbers as well. It's, clear, it's a, you know, essentially a clear indication that you know, the Bank of Canada and the Fed is essentially well behind the curve at this point. So essentially, you know, it paves the way for them to be more aggressive over the short term, at least over the next couple of months. Um, I think it's a good possibility that perhaps we see a 50 basis point move by either the Bank of Canada or the Fed, at least in one of the next two meetings as well. Um, in addition to that, I think what's also moving rates higher is, you know, as I mentioned before, I think a lot of economies now are learning to live with COVID. So that, that means we're going to see less lockdowns, less disruptions in the economy. So I think that's going to lift interest rates up higher as well. Uh, on the flip side, however, you know, over, I think, you know, we saw this in the, the back end of February. Uh, we saw a lot of, especially institutions, buy a lot of, you know, bonds, government bonds on the long end of the curve, essentially to hedge out macroeconomic risk. Um, so even though we are seeing a lot of, you know, on and off peace talks between Russia and Ukraine, there still is the potential for that conflict to escalate as well. So, you know, going back to your point in terms of whether it makes sense to buy, um, you know, long-term bonds, um, I think it makes sense as long as you're using it as a way to hedge out tail risk. Uh, keep in mind, however, when you look at the yield curve right now, you know, I'm looking at the five-year, the 10-year, and the 30-year, they're all trading, you know, roughly around 2, 2.4 to 2.6%. So it is a pretty flat yield curve. It is starting to invert um, at the end of the curve as well. Um, but I, I, I think if you're looking, you know, to my point before, I think if you're looking at, you know, long-term bonds through our long federal bond ETF, um, so ZFL or even our long U.S. Treasury ETF, ZTL, I think if you hold a 5% position in your portfolio as a way to hedge out that tail risk, I think it definitely makes sense, um, even at these levels. Um, one thing I would point out is that I wouldn't look at each of these positions as a standalone position, uh, given that, you know, when you're looking at these fixed income positions, uh, given that they do have long duration exposure, um, they could exhibit, you know, equity-like losses and gains, especially with, you know, inflation on the horizon at these levels. Um, I think investors, when they adopt these positions in the portfolio, they have to take more of a holistic view. Uh, for retail advisors, however, you know, retail advisors tend to live on the short end of the curve. That tends to be their comfort zone. Um, I think a much better way for retail advisors to play the fixed income market right now is through ZBI, which is their Canadian bank income ETF. Uh, this ETF essentially invests in instruments issued by Canadian banks. 
Um, why I think it makes sense for today's market is because, you know, 60% of it is invested in, you know, bonds issued by banks. So that's going to offer safety and defense. The, re- the remaining 40% can be issued by, or sorry, uh, it's going to be invested in instruments lower down the capital structure. So think of these as, you know, preferred shares, institutional preferred shares, uh, the limited recourse capital notes. Um, so this layer is going to protect or provide protection against rising interest rates, also going to generate higher yield as well. Um, also, you know, just going back to the bond portion of this portfolio, keep in mind, you know, bonds issued by banks, 99% of them, I would say, are issued on the short end of the curve. So for a retail advisor, you know, I think that's the safer way to play it at this point. You know, as I mentioned before, it's a pretty, pretty flat yield curve at this point. So, you know, investors aren't really compensated for taking on duration risk at this point anyways. Um, so just, you know, talking about the metrics is that the uh, yield to maturity is roughly about 3.7% right now. Keep in mind, 20% of that is going to be taxed as dividends. Duration is, you know, 2.6%. So that's, or sorry, 2.6. So that's essentially in the wheelhouse for many retail advisors. So, you know, just in summary, I think, you know, going back to your point on, on the long end of the curve, I think it makes sense if you're taking more of a total portfolio holistic view. Um, but if you're an advisor, I think ZBI is a, you know, pretty good solution for today's climate, given that it addresses you know, generating higher yield, uh, protecting against rising interest rates, and arguably because it's it's invested in the Canadian banks, it's arguably invested in, you know, the highest quality corporate sector in Canada as well. Great. Thanks for that update, Alfred. And you, and you certainly do offer up a pretty unique solution there with ZBI. We know we, we're catching a lot of advisor interest in that product here in the early days, having having just brought that to market. Now let's switch over to the equity side, where we're certainly seeing heightened market risk. And perhaps because of that, we're getting more advisor questions coming in around the covered call suite. Now, if we consider the stronger returns in the Canadian market, how has ZWC uh, performed over the past year, that being our high dividend uh, Canadian covered call. And what makes this strategy successful in capturing strong total returns? Thanks. Great question. So, um, you know, there's a lot of factors that are really favorable for ZWC right now. You, you touched on one right off the top um, that Canadian equities have been very strong. Um, you know, Canadian equities are more value oriented. And at the same time, as you know, we've seen higher interest rates have, have been a part of driving that kind of value versus growth rotation, where we've seen this rotation back into value. It's favored Canadian equities overall, been a little bit of a headwind to U.S. equities. Um, from a factor point of view, that, that rotation's also fav- favored the dividend factor. So ZWC is our high dividend um, cover call in Canada. You know, of course, we have them in U.S. and Europe as well. Uh, but the dividend factor has been very strong. So year to date, uh, it's outperforming the broad beta indexes by kind of three to 4% across the globe. So ZWC, if you look, uh, well, you asked for a one-year return, actually. Well, it's the same thing. It's about a 4% outperformance on a one-year, uh, 22% on the ZWC and about 18 on the ZCN. If you look at our dividend portfolios, they're they're very strong as well, almost 8% outperformance on the ZDB in Canada. Uh, but certainly that dividend factor is driving returns. Uh, higher volatility has been something that, you know, we always talk about how that benefits our option overlay. And, you know, with a cover call, it's, it's a mixture of growth and income. But having that high volatility means we can 
generate that income more effectively, have a really strong upside participation and returns. And, you know, last but not least, kind of, you know, and this is tied to the value and growth rotation, but in higher inflation regimes, you know, we've done some work and the dividend and value factors are, are quite strong factors in those higher inflation regimes as well. So, you know, it's been a lot of things clicking on all cylinders. And anytime you look at a covered call strategy, you want to look at the foundation of the portfolio, which is dividend equities in this case. And you want to look at that option overlay as well. But it's been a very nice backdrop on both sides of the ledger uh, with respect to those equities and and the option overlay. Uh, so it's led to a very strong performance. So I'm not surprised that advisors are taking notice. You know, um, obviously fixed income and, and, and Alfred was speaking to it is, is a challenging market. But, you know, when you're seeking to create income, you know, equities can provide that very secure hedge against inflation and throwing that cover call overlay as well on top of it you know, taking the yields into that 6 to 7% range on a sustainable basis. You know, it's a very good solution to um, to hedge against an inflation and, and provide income. Uh, so, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a very solid backdrop. You know, it's something I think we are expecting still to continue, you know, throughout the year and into next year. Um, you know, as Alfred said, and as you said, Mark, that the market has to come to terms with some of these, you know, higher priced uh, interest rate hikes, perhaps 50 basis points from the Bank of Canada uh, next week. And, and, you know, many banks are thinking it's another 50 in the meeting after that. So um, the Fed is obviously on, on quite a similar trajectory. So uh, a lot of risk in the market, but it is favoring these dividend based strategies and the high dividend cover call suite. And in the market, which is nice to see, but the market that's been participating the most has been Canada. So it's been great to see that outperformance. And, you know, like I said, I think it's a theme that we're looking uh, to continue for the rest of the year, at least. And, uh, you know, as, as these kind of general trends are are in place for the rest of the year with interest rate hikes and persistently high inflation that needs to be addressed. So it's been good to see. And I'm, I'm glad that our clients are uh, taking notice of those. Thanks, Chris. And, and when we think about your implementation strategy on the options where you know, you're writing on about half the book, short-dated, out-of-the-money options, that really allows the portfolio to have the opportunity to, to appreciate as well. And I think that's, uh, that's really critical uh, when you look at some of the volatility in the marketplace. Now, as a follow-up on income strategies, we've also been asked for an update on ZPay, our premium yield ETF. Uh, with this innovative strategy, how much equity exposure do you have and how are you approaching the options markets? Thanks. Yeah, so right now, uh, equities are up to about 45% in the portfolio. Um, started the year at our at our neutral weight of a you know, low 30% range. Um, the sell-off that occurred in, in the broad markets and, and this strategy is uh, based off U.S. underlying. So some of that weakness I was talking about in the U.S. market um, what the fund does is it sells puts and if and sells puts on equities we want to own. And if equities sell off, we go ahead and buy those stocks and then seek to profit from the recovery. Uh, so if you look at the S&P 500 peak to trough uh, this year, it went down almost 12%. Um, so if you look at our ZUE ETF, um, the cap downside capture on the premium yield was about half that. So it went down about half, half that amount. Uh, but we did add to equities over those first couple months of the year. You know, and, and that accelerated even in the early March uh, with the Ukraine war. 
Um, and then we saw that really nice market rally in March. And, you know, that's, that's one of the benefits of the premium yield is, and I'll talk about yield generation in a second on the option side, but that timing factor of buying equities when they go down and, and participating when they go back up um, is a really nice feature of the product. Um, and then just moving to the option side, you know, and again, the, you know, one of the really attractive features is that backdrop of high volatility. Uh, but one thing that's interesting about the market of volatility is options. You know, there's some very good trade-offs there, but, you know, a lot of investors are seeking to insure their portfolios right now. So they're buying puts to the downside. Um, now, as this fund is selling puts and and taking on a portion of da- potential downside in return for income, you know, what we're seeing is this fund can really benefit from that high level of um, called skew in the market where downside volatility is more expensive. Um, and it could just lead to some very good trade-offs where we, you know, can sell puts on high quality companies that we, you know, really like and don't mind owning, you know, in excess of 10% out of the money and collect a very healthy income stream from that. So uh, the volatility backdrop is attractive, but on top of that, with some of the puts that we're selling, even more attractive. So, you know, that's what helps this product achieve that, you know, really healthy uh, 6.5% yield and and keep that risk really managed as well but again still have that ability to somewhat tactically get in and out of equities at attractive levels so you know it's something that will um continue to to look to do but you know i do think that ability to profit from a higher volatility profile again you know that's something i'm going to be expecting to see throughout the year you know as as investors deal with you know some of these higher risk kind of backdrops in the market with inflation, interest rates, and, and obviously the war in Ukraine as well, geopolitics. So I think it's a perfectly positioned fund to generate some income at a defensive, kind of a more of a defensive orientation relative to outright equities. Thanks for that, Chris. And yeah, certainly continued interest in, in ZPay as an alternative income sleeve within the portfolio as you say, uh, not really marching with equities and in, in providing that income that a lot of advisors are looking for. From the pandemic and rising inflation to rate hikes and geopolitical conflict, investors have experienced extreme levels of volatility and uncertainty in recent months. In that environment, what can advisors do to mitigate investment risk and manage financial expectations? Join Portfolio Manager Chris Heeks as he explores ETF ideas to help your clients smooth the ride. Part one of a three-part monthly webinar series is streaming March 31st through June 30th. Register now at BMOETFsForum.com. Now, we can't go a call without talking about oil, Uh, certainly watching that market quite closely. Uh, it's come off its immediate peak. Of course, uh, a lot going on with, with Russia and Ukraine and new news over the last couple of days. Uh, so now back around $100 per barrel. Uh, while we all feel the pain at, at the pumps and, and as users, uh, what about the other side? Is there still upside with this trade if we look at an ETF like our ZEO, our large cap oil and gas ETF? Thanks. You're definitely right. I would say oil is... Um front and center right now. But when you look at the, you know, potential upside for ZEO, I'd still say there's, you know, potential upside here. Um, so even though we did see oil prices pulled back over the last, you know, couple of trading sessions, um, I think it's up, 
slightly this morning. Uh, you know, ZEO, when you look at it, it's, it's still pretty close to its post-pandemic highs, right? So $61 was roughly where it closed at last night, which is, you know, pretty pretty much its post-pandemic high. Um, so not saying that there's a linear relationship between ZEO and oil prices, but last time, you know, when ZEO was at this price, uh, WTI was only trading at $53 a barrel. So, you know, obviously noting that you know, the composition of ZEO has changed since then. Um, it's a good indication, at least, that you know, there's a lot of margin at you know, oil, oil prices, even at you know, $100 per barrel. Um, but as I mentioned on the call last week, I think you know, we don't need oil prices moving up this quickly with you know, the price of everything going up at this point. Um, you, know, you mentioned you know, everybody already feeling it at the pumps, but we're essentially feeling it you know, all in our wallets right now. I mean, we're getting higher food prices, Mortgage payments are going up because interest rates are going up. Um, so even if we get oil prices moving back to you know 125 or even higher than that, um, that's certainly going to choke off demand. I think. Um, you know, keep in mind when you look at it historically, every time we've seen a oil shock, it does send the economy into a recession. So 1973, I think, is a very good example that's very aligned with what we're seeing right now. 2008, another good example as well. That's a little bit fresher in our minds. But, you know, I think if oil prices were to even go lower at this point, around you know, $80 per barrel, I think that's going to be good for the long-term, um, you know, the long-term outlook for the energy companies in Canada. I think that demand is going to be more sustainable. Um, you know, hopefully we get a resolution in Russia and Ukraine. Um, I think, you know, that's what, you know, the, the, the world wants. I think that's going to be good for the people of Ukraine. Um, but it's definitely going to lead to oil prices softening up. But, you know, keep in mind that, you know, a lot of the prices or the price gains that we've seen in oil prices over the last year hasn't been driven by what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. It's not driven by that conflict. The conflict is certainly added to it. But, you know, when you look at, you know, the overall backdrop of what's going on in energy, uh, producers are already ru- running at full capacity here, right? So even a lot of the Middle Eastern producers, they're already at capacity. So there's very little supply in terms of, you know, crude oil. Uh, demand is also going to come back online over the next couple of weeks and the next couple of months as well with, you know, summer coming. That's essentially um, summer driving season. We have return to office. You have increased traveling as well. You know, a lot of people I've talked to, they're not only booking their next vacation, but their next vacations over the next two years as well. So I think that's going to be, you know, all that's all going to be good for the demand for oil. That's certainly going to you know, keep oil prices, you know, elevated. Um, but overall, I think that's going to be good for oil prices. It's going to be good for ZEO. Um, Biden also mentioned that he's you know, desperate for oil exports out of Canada as well. So that's certainly good for the long-term outlook for um, ZEO and Canadian energy as well. Um, but just in terms of portfolio positioning, I think you know, 5 to 10% position in ZEO, I think is more than adequate. I think it makes sense for right now, given what we're seeing in the energy space. Um, but again, I think ZEO is a good way to get exposure to the energy market. But because it uses that equal weighting, it's a good way to get, you know, more exposure to that energy beta. But at the same time, you know, mitigating that company-specific risk as well. Thanks for that update, Alfred. Certainly, oil very, very topical in today's markets, and a lot of a lot of advisors asking questions on where where it might go. So with that, that's all the questions we have for today. So I want to thank everyone for listening in. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks as well to both Chris and Alfred. Uh, Some really insightful 
conversations and comments today covering a lot of different areas, so we appreciate uh, your responses. And with that, I just want to thank everyone one last time, and have a great day. Thank you to Mark Rays, Chris Heeks, and Alfred Lee for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we heard about the BMO Canadian Bank Income Index ETF, ticker ZBI, which can protect against rising interest rates while providing exposure to one of Canada's highest quality corporate sectors. Our experts also discussed the BMO Canadian High Dividend Covered Call ETF, ticker ZWC, which can be a good option to generate income while hedging against inflation. For more information about the ETFs discussed in this podcast, check out the episode notes, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or visit the new and improved Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. That's bmoetfs.ca. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.